probably go ahead and get started. All right. So probably go ahead and get started here. We're expecting some stragglers who are lost somewhere between our, most of our folks are over in the, the other building in the main medical center. Um, and you can't get there from here now given the construction <laughs> that's happening. So um, I'd like to, oh, so the, are we videoing? We're good yes, to go. Everything's right. happening. Right. Yeah, great. So um, welcome to the May uh, HIV seminar. And today we have Andrew and Norberg. Do I, Richard, before I yeah. start in, do I need to say anything about oh, no. conflict of interests? There are no conflicts of interest <laughs> for our speaker today. <laughs> None. So Andrea Norberg, um, uh, who's going to be speaking to us on HIV in the patient-centered medical home, uh, a hot topic. Um, Andrea um, got her BS in nursing in, at uh, SUNY Buffalo, and then from there moved to University of Rochester, uh, where she got her MS in nursing, and from then on till now has been very active in the world of HIV. Um, currently the executive director and adjunct um, assistant professor of nursing at FXB, uh, which is the full name on here. There you go, Francis Xavier Bag. Francois Xavier Bagnus Bagnus Center. Center. <laughs> Thank you, FXB. Um, and uh, there has many responsibilities as the executive director, obviously. He's the PI and lead on, on a number of uh, programs at the center. The most pertinent one for us today is uh, the HIV Medical Homes Resource Center. And uh, has been working around patient-centered medical home for a while. And we are excited to hear your presentation as we ourselves are thinking about where to go in regard to patient-centered homes. Well, I thank you very much. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite nice to speak with people that actually want to hear about the patient-centered medical home movement. So um, I'm looking forward to sharing with you some of our lessons learned in our project. Um, first of all, by show of hands, how many of you know about the patient-centered medical home in general and then as it relates to HIV? Couple hands. So are sort of a novice group. It, anyone um, working towards recognition or certification to become a patient-centered medical home? Not yet? Okay, well that's helpful to me um, in, in sort of striking the right balance here because there's a lot of information on this topic and, and more and more um, has come out recently. So what I'm going to try to do today very quickly is to take you through a little bit of the history around the patient-centered medical home, uh, share with you some of the components of the PCMH initiative, and I'm going to refer to it as PCMH, patient-centered medical home, just for ease of, of talking. Um, there is a lot of uh, evidence that's coming out now, so I will share with you some of that. And I will also share some resources that we have developed through the HIV Medical Homes Resource Center, and then a lot of other resources. So um, thank you for that introduction. Um, I am from the Francois Xavier Bagno Center, which is a center of the School of Nursing now at Rutgers University. We were formerly UMDNJ, for those of you who know that. We were um, merged. It was a forced marriage, and it'll be official on July 1, 2014. And so 
In 2011, HRSA awarded us um, the HIV Medical Homes Resource Center grant, and we're working in collaboration with the Center for Excellence in Primary Care at UCSF. And what we have done since then is to, to over the last three years, as we're sort of winding down this, this cooperative agreement, is worked with Ryan White Clinics throughout the, the U.S. in their efforts to become patient-centered medical homes. We've done that in a few different ways. We've had regional strategic planning workshops where we've pulled together interdisciplinary teams from those Ryan White Clinics and, and took them through a process of learning about it and then developing their own action plans for moving forward. And since that time, we've been hosting what we've called virtual learning collaboratives with these clinical teams to get more intense around um, the, the journey to become a patient-centered medical home. We've hosted a number of webinars, et cetera, that I'll share with you at the end because they're all archived and available to you as well. So the goals of the HIV Medical Homes Resource Center. I explained to you a little bit about that, but HRSA really wanted us to create some momentum with Ryan White Clinics, who have been uh, really behaving as though they are medical homes for quite some time and, and really are a great example of a patient-centered medical home. So what, what they, they wanted us to start getting the message out that this was part of healthcare reform and then helping them to get there. And we've actually worked with 60 clinics to advance their efforts to become patient-centered medical homes since we began in 2011. So what is it? So a precise definition of the medical home continues to evolve, but these are some of the core components. So it's a model for delivering primary care. I think you one slide Oh, I am? See, I'm not used to seeing these two up here. There we go. So, okay, so it's, there we go. So the patient-centered medical home is a model for delivering primary care, and it facilitates the partnerships between patients, providers, and care teams. And care teams is, is really underscored here, and you'll hear a lot more about that as I go through the presentation. So the core components are the ones that you see here, patient-centered, it's evidence-based, comprehensible, comprehensive, accessible, and committed to quality and safety. So you see why now this is a really good fit for Ryan White programs and for HIV centers, because we've really been working um, in this way for quite a, a long time. I'm sure you've heard of the IHI triple aim. Is that true? Okay, it doesn't sound like it. A lot of people have because it's been sort of front and center to the Affordable Care Act. And it's a framework developed by the Institute for Health Improvement uh, to, to optimize our health uh, system's performance throughout the U.S. And these are the three measures, to improve the patient experience, increase quality, and reduce costs. So... It's IHI's belief that new designs must be developed to pursue these three dimensions, which are called the triple aim, right? And the patient-centered medical home is thought of to be the care delivery model that will help us to get there. So this is, sets the context. 
And uh, you'll hear a lot more about IHI, triple aim, throughout your efforts to become a patient-centered medical home because the recognition and certification bodies also incorporate um, these, this framework throughout. So I'll provide with you, provide you a little bit of the history because it's actually not a new concept. So the momentum has increased a lot in the last six years, so you're probably hearing quite a bit about it now, but it really did originate in 1967, and it originated then as a model to care for children with complex chronic conditions, and it was thought that if we created a medical home for these, these children, we would have a patient record that would be all in one place, we would have the interdisciplinary teams, care plans, all available for these patients, et cetera. So that, so the American Academy of Pediatrics introduced the term uh, medical home back then. So I'm going to jump over some of these points, all important and all things you can read about, to 2007. In 2007, the joint principles of the patient-centered medical home uh, were endorsed. And they were endorsed by four uh, physician practice groups, the, the uh, American Osteopathic Association, the American Academy of Family Physicians, American Co College of Physicians, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. And for the first time, so I've been told, these groups came together and actually endorsed something, um, and we're all sort of on the same page about it. So then things started to rev up even more because it was really spreading throughout the medical community that this was the model to, to consider going forward. So in 2008, we began to see recognition and accreditation for patient-centered medical homes initiative, initiatives. And you, you probably have heard of the National Committee for Quality Insurance. Now that's the organization that most clinical practices are recognized by. But the Joint Commission also has an accreditation. The Utilization Review Committee, URAC, they, they're changing their name. So it, it stands for URAC, Util, Utilization Review Association Committee, or something like that. And then the Ambulatory Care Association is also recognizing uh, clinics as patient-centered medical homes. So the top three are NCQA, the Joint Commission, and the Ambulatory Care Association. So that, that um, is significant, significant in 2008. So then, now, the Affordable Care Act was signed into law. We all know that. And so much of it is really about primary care transformation. Now, over the last 30 years, a lot of research, a lot of academic research was done on primary care. And, and what has been found when looking at countries and health systems that really have invested in primary care, that they're seeing better health outcomes and decreased costs. And you know that the US is very expensive and doesn't have great health outcomes. So the patient-centered medical home is actually very heavily endorsed within ACA. In 2011 through 13, we were actually beginning to see payment reform around the patient-centered medical home. So Medicaid and Medicare actually have, have, have um, 
held demonstration projects since that time, incentivizing patient-centered medical homes. And, and so now that, now that there's an incentive and a reason to do it, a lot of practices are jumping on the bandwagon. And there are a whole bunch of things, CMS innovations work, health information technology, and incentivizing uh, new electronic health records, all in an effort to coordinate care and create this medical home model. So to emphasize this, the sort of the reach of this a little further, I, I'm showing you this map. And it, 47 states are advancing their medical homes initiatives in their Medicaid and um, CHIP programs. Now, I, I took a little time to research what's been going on in New Hampshire. And perhaps you know that Citizen, oops, Citizens Health uh, Initiative has had a multi-stakeholder medical home pilot. And actually, it just, well, it's, it ended in 2011, but they haven't really published what's come out of that yet. Um, it's taken a while to get the evaluation data out, but they are working on it according to their website. Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare has recently wrapped up a 15-month pilot. Um, the, New Jersey, or the New Hampshire Healthy Families Initiative Act, it's my understanding that they're just starting this, actually, uh, to support its network providers in, in achieving recognition. And if you don't know about this, you probably should try to learn more about it because they're providing resources to practices that are interested in and able to become patient-centered medical homes. The work is intense, so if, so if they're able to provide uh, clinics with practice coaches and, and other educational offerings, you should take advantage of it because it, it, it is really time intensive. And it's not rocket science, but there's a lot of steps in the process, so it'd be great if you could you look into that. So who's engaged in supporting it? You know, we, we just, I just shared with you what's going on in New Hampshire and the country is no different. A lot of commercial and not-for-profits are um, moving this initiative forward. Large employers are expecting that um, the health care be provided in a medical home, Medicaid programs throughout the U.S. The VA is actually a very big um, is very big into medical homes and, and actually are very advanced in their model. HRSA, the Bureau of Primary Health Care, now HRSA HAB um, with our Ryan White clinics and primary care associations and community health centers. And community health centers are probably further along than most. The National Committee for Quality Assurance has recognized almost 30,000 clinicians at, at about 7,000 sites throughout the U.S. to date. So you can see that this, this movement is not letting up. So Ryan White. Ryan White clinics are positioned well to become patient-centered medical homes, and Dr. Michael Sag said it well in 2009. He, he wrote a little piece uh, entitled Ryan White, an Unintentional Home Builder. And you can read that. It's actually, um, uh, it actually says it better than I can. And I believe that Michael Sag came here for a presentation a few years ago. Richard told me that. So um, you probably heard a little bit from him as well. 
Brian White is well positioned to become a patient-centered medical home, but we too have some issues that we need to, to deal with. And um, so even we have to improve quality, we have some workforce issues and need to think about costs. I think we need to be really proud about the good work that we do, but we need to seek opportunities to showcase the value that we offer to our patients. Those extended wraparound services, for example, in a fee-for-service system aren't reimbursed. But in the future, under a value-based system, they may be in re re reimbursed, and that's sort of at the core of Ryan White programs. So we all know some of this data. If you pay attention to HIVQUAL, we can do better with these measures. We know a number of us have really focused in on the treatment cascade or the care continuum, and we know that there's some issues with it, but we do know that there's room for improvement as well. And the HIV Medicine Association in 2010 surveyed Ryan White Part C clinics throughout the U.S. and found that Part C's are really concerned about reimbursement and lack of qualified providers, lack of qualified HIV providers, um, especially as we all age up and, um, and we're not attracting as many people into HIV care. So um, there, there are opportunities um, there as well. So I believe most of you know about Ryan White funding because you work within Ryan White settings. So you know that Ryan White is a discretionary allocation. It's a grant. We're, we're funded to provide the care and treatment that to our patients through grants. And um, for a number of years, Ryan White was reauthorized every th three years. And last year, they did away with that reauthorization. And now it's a year-by-year um, -year appropriation, an annual appropriation. So the Congress actually will say whether they're going to appropriate us with the funds to take care of people living with HIV. Now, that's really nerve-wracking, at least I think so. Um, and I'm sure you're feeling it as well. So there, we really need to begin to think about new ways to generate revenue within our clinics to sustain the programs that we have. For our FXB center clinic, we're Part D funded clinic um, caring for um, perinatally infected children and families. And um, right now, our payer mix is primarily Medicaid, with only 17% of our patients receiving Ryan White funding as the payer of last resort. So it's, it behooves us to think about becoming a patient-centered medical home so that we can receive some in, enhanced reimbursement from New Jersey State Medicaid as a PCMH, and, and perhaps you're beginning to think about that as well. So the benefits of becoming a PCMH in HIV, I hope I'm convincing you that this is the right idea for you. Certainly a number of skills that we've all gained because of being a Ryan White grantee supports this whole uh, recognition effort. Um, it, it position, becoming a patient-centered medical home positions us to take advantage of those financial incentives that I talked about and possible bonuses. And we believe that more and more is going to come out because of the evaluation studies being so positive. 
we think that this is a way for us to really show the value of care that we provide to our patients as discussed with our wraparound services and really um, uh, comprehensive case management and things like that that aren't typically reimbursed. And the patient-centered medical home is the foundation of uh, two accountable care organizations. And I know that Dartmouth-Hitchcock has an ACO around Medicare, so I'm not sure um, if Medicaid will be included, which is probably some of the insurance, the payers within your um, Ryan White clinics. But it's important to think about that because that is the way that things are going. And uh, the medical home is sort of the core to that accountable care organization. So what is it in more detail and what's included in the model? Um, it, so if you're new to thinking about this, there, there are quite a, a few different ways to refer to the patient-centered medical home. It's, it's referred to as the patient-aligned care teams, health homes, advanced primary care practice, community health care home, medical home port, the Navy actually um, calls it that, and the primary care medical home. So you'll hear it referred to in quite a few different ways. There are multiple sources of core uh, concepts around it. Um, Dr. Ed Wagner uh, put together some core concepts around the chronic care model, and so many of those are core to the patient-centered medical homes. Some people believe that he um, was one of the, the, uh, the first people to introduce the concepts of the patient-centered medical home. We're using uh, what you'll hear about in a moment, the building blocks of high-performing primary care. And the recognition, recognition and certification um, bodies also have their own sort concepts and, and priorities as it relates to um, patient-centered medical home. But what we've seen over the last three years is all of those entities are coming together and we're seeing much more consensus around these core concepts. And I mentioned there's multiple sources of recognition. So the building blocks of high-performing primary care and, and its title Lessons from the Field, our colleague Tom Bodenheimer and Rachel Willard from the Center for Excellence in Primary Care at UCSF studied a number of uh, high-performing primary care practices throughout the U.S. And they did a lot of intensive site visits to those that are closer to them in California, but they really visited all of these practice sites. And they found that they were quite similar. Those practices that were really high performing, you, know, you knew that they were doing great stuff the moment you walked in the door. They had a lot of similarities and recurring themes. From that, they developed the building blocks of high performing primary care. And the Medical Homes Resource Center is using the building blocks as the framework for helping our clinics to fully transition to a PCMH. In the next few slides, I'm going to share with you a little bit more of the detail around the building blocks. And they line up really well with recognition and accreditation. You're going to hear, if you're into recognition and accreditation, you're going to, to see that the concepts are quite similar. So these are the 10 building blocks of high-performing primary care. And these, these four on the bottom 
are the foundational building blocks. Engage leadership, data-driven improvement, empanelment, and team-based care. So engaged leadership is about catalyzing a commitment around a strong mission and vision, and it's really the leader's job to do that. Um, uh, working with a leadership team to make sure everybody's aligned around that vision and communicating it very clearly are um, really important strategies for the leaders of, of any practice transformation effort. And the evidence shows that by developing an intentional campaign around something like this, you're going to get more buy-in, you're going to be able to um, get it done quicker, et cetera. Um, and some of the things around intentional campaign is having frequent meetings to discuss it. Uh, you'll, you want to assess, um, have access to leaders around this so people can ask questions as you go because any change processes can be very overwhelming um, to us all. It's really helpful to have change champion, champions and resources attached to it. it. It can't be an unfunded mandate. You can't expect a bunch of people to try to get this done with no time to do it. So these are all some of the concepts um, that you have to think about. And in, in many clinics, you have to convince your board, your, your community advisory boards, your, your boards to, to go along with this, this effort. So the reason that I provided a little bit about the history and all of that and, and where we've come with the process is this is some of the stuff that you would want to use with those people as you're moving forward with this effort. And all of this is available to you, and I'll share with you more about it. So you may want to reuse it. Other things as it relates to leadership, um, being visible, managing the change process, ensuring time and resources we talked about, and, um, and as you're thinking about building your team over time, really incorporating that in your hiring process. And what we suggest to clinics that we're working with is to, to think about that successful QI effort or big initiative that you did in your clinic, and it, that was because it was successful, you should try to mirror it with your PCMH activities and do some of the same things like you may select a team to work on this, you may select a couple of teams to work on this, but what we think is most effective is if you have somebody that oversees this process and really guides it forward. So a project lead. You may need to do some team building with change. A lot of behaviors come out. Um, and you may have to do some leadership training, too. So data-driven improvement is another core component, and it, it highlights the need for accurate data to inform our decisions, and these are the, the points here. It's data around the patient and family experience, CQI data, and population management data. And the good news is Ryan White programs have to do QI. It's part of our funding um, requirement. And, uh, and, and for those of you who have developed QI programs, you, you may know the National Quality Center has a ton of resources that are available to Ryan White programs to help you to do that. If you need to improve that, um, you can work with them, and they'll actually send out a consultant to your clinic to help you to develop your, your quality improvement um, program. 
QI is a really big piece around PCMH. It's not the only piece, but it is a big piece. Things like dashboards, you've probably heard about creating dashboards where you can display your QI efforts, and there's other visuals that you um, would post in the clinic. It's being very transparent with QI. That's, that's an important component around PCMH. Everybody is responsible for it. That's, that's a big piece not just some of the, the folks in the clinic, but everyone. And that includes your patients. So involving patients in QI is, is something that you may not have done before. We actually found that most of our Ryan White clinics had not done that before. So we, had, we developed a webinar around that, which is archived, and I'll share that with you later. Empanelment. So if a primary tenant of the patient-centered medical home is, is that continuous relationship between a team of providers and an informed patient, then you have to provide a mechanism for allowing that to happen, and that's empanelment. So empanel have you heard of the concept of empanelment? Do you know? So have you empaneled? Not really. It's tricky. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah. Patient it's, it's not traditional, but yes. And sometimes, yeah. That's our nurses speaking. But yeah, patients is yeah. saying nurses but let me stretch it a little further than it being the doctor. So it, it's, it's the primary physician, of course. Um, nurse practitioners and PAs are also considered providers in a PCMH, so it could be impanelment to them. But taking it just a little bit further, it's impaneling patients to a care team so that your patients know their primary provider, but also know their care team. And sometimes in, in academic health centers, in our place for sure, um, it's the, the primary providers are those that may be working part-time in the clinic because of their other duties, research, um, teaching, etc. And so who's the, who's the constant in the clinic? And sometimes in paneling and thinking about it a little differently, in paneling the patients to perhaps an RN that's full-time in that practice and having the relationship be with the providers um, in addition to the RN, of course, but that be the constant for the patient because the bottom line is, is this is about creating continuity for your patient. And, um, and it has been a challenge for Ryan White clinics, particularly those that are in academic health centers. Some of, those, some of the clinics that are in community health centers and AIDS service organizations have their own set of challenges, but not, not um, so much the part-time provider piece. So the other important um, uh, building block is team-based care, and this, there, this is majorly emphasized um, with the patient-centered medical home. And I talked about it just a bit ago uh, about establishing uh, these care delivery teams, and they're interdisciplinary, and, and the ones that we know about and, and actually are quite comfortable in, with in Ryan White. We wor have worked this way for a long time uh, in primary care, really, they have, they may have the luxury of having um, 
an RN, but most often they have a medical assistant in a primary care practice, and they, they often don't have access to behavioral health or case management or all those, those other types of roles that we have been um, lucky to have. In, included in the care delivery team is also roles that you might not think of, and that's your front desk uh, staff as well. Um, a true patient-centered medical home, when you walk into the practice, everybody knows the patient and are engaged. And in some of those high-performing practices, the front desk staff um, were part of the care teams and co-located with um, the other providers and, and really were taught um, to do some of the follow-up that's necessary with patients, et cetera. So the, you'll see here that there's a question, are we sharing the care? And I'm going, I have a little exercise um, that I'm gonna go through with you about that because I, I, we have found some things in Ryan White that I'll look forward to sharing with you. So understanding the roles and responsibilities and redefining them so that the functions reflect the skills and credentials of each team member is extremely important. And, um, and we'll get to a little more about that in a moment. These are some of the other elements of team-based care. The patient identifies with the team. It's a stable team. Um, you don't have people rotating off um, and roles changing over time. It's really stable, typically co-located so that you can have this regular communication um, just in time, not just once a week. Um, standing orders and protocols help, help team members work to their highest skill level and to their highest credentialing. Uh, workflows help a lot. When you do a workflow mapping, you can understand who would best be suited to do what with a patient, and there are lots of ways to do this, and, it's, um, and some of those practice coaches actually might be able to help with that. Training and cross-training is obvious um, for new roles and responsibilities. And having ground rules that apply to everyone, not just part of the team, is important. And, and where we're trying to head is around, is really effective communication. And, and, and some of the things that um, are talked about quite a bit are these healthy huddles, terrific team meetings, and constant conversation. So when you have this really tight team, it's sort of... Um, really quite apparent. So at the end of your tables, there's this exercise. If you could pass, we may not have time to do it completely on our own, but I will go through it with you. On the third page of it, there's this tool. And it says, share the care. Who does it now? It looks like this. So on the left-hand side, you see a number of tasks. And they're sort of made-up tasks, but they're relevant to HIV. And then along the top, you have the various um, uh, roles within your clinic. And the idea is to go down and, and quickly check it off and and 
to see who's doing these activities. And if more than one person is doing it, um, you can put check marks in more than one box. So if you want to do it, go ahead. But I think for sake of time, I'm going to show you this because we used this approach with our Ryan White clinics and we found that that when they did this exercise, most of the time, the primary care providers were doing all the tasks. That's not what you want to do when you're really sharing the care and um, uh, having people work at the top of their credentials and skills level. It's really about thinking who the right person in the clinic is to perform these activities and sometimes we as providers think that we're the only ones that can do this correctly. We were, we were quite struck actually that it looked very much like this from Brian White. So we challenge you to actually do this exercise with your teams and have everybody sort of think about that from their perspective and go through the exercise because you might find that um, there's duplication of effort or that people don't know who does what in the clinic. So it creates a lot of opportunities for really great discussion. And the whole exercise and some discussion questions are um, available to you to consider. So this is actually what you want to see, is that you're maximizing your team and really um, assigning the work to the right roles. And, and the, the important reason to do this is, and, and a number of the providers in this room and, and across the country will readily say this, there aren't enough providers, we have workforce shortages, so we really need to maximize our team. That's, that's a core piece of the patient-centered medical home too. So there's, there are discussion questions that are attached to this exercise. Give it some thought. Um, you can see there are there certain roles that seem to have more responsibilities than others. Maybe this is legitimate, maybe it's not. Um, you could consider, perhaps there are opportunities to consider reassigning it, et cetera, et cetera. This is a great way to have this conversation, which sometimes can be a hard conversation. So we have found. The other building block is patient team partnerships. And I, and I think that for the most part, Ryan White clinics are really um, very well um, covering this, uh, this aspect really well. We're, we have developed culturally competent models of care delivery. We understand health disparities. We understand um, meeting patients where they're at and respecting them. Um, what maybe we're not so good at is encouraging patient involvement in their health care and uh, supporting the concept of self-management. At least we have found that a number of the Ryan White clinics that we've worked with haven't quite gotten there with self-management. And actually, we put together a webinar on that as well to help with that. And then including uh, patients and families in QI efforts, which is uh, an important component of, of the model. Organized evidence-based care. We utilize the public health service guidelines. We're, we're, we are required to do so because we are Ryan White funded, so that really helps us here. 
So we, we plan care according to um, patient need. We um, manage the care for high-risk patients. In some cases, um, our clinics have been able to develop point-of-care reminders through the electronic health records. And so let me ask you, do you like your electronic health record? No. <laughs> Surprisingly, at our last regional strategic planning meeting, all of the Ryan White clinics said they love their EHR. Our opinion of ours is that it's not good. And then it doesn't, it doesn't link up well with careware either. So you're duplicating things. And actually, one of the clinics that we are working with is trying to figure out an interface. They hired an IT guy that's looking for an, to develop an interface between careware and their electronic health record. And the last conversation we had with them is you need to market that when that's done because every Ryan White clinic in the U.S. is going to need that. So if you have a really good EHR, this is going to help you to do this. You, you can do this without an EHR, but it obviously will require humans to participate in. Another important component is enhanced access, and this is also from a recognition uh, certification aspect. This is really key, too. In order to be a patient-centered medical home, you need to ensure 24-7 access. And it doesn't need to be that you're open 24-7. You, you create um, different scheduling options and different ways for, people, for patients to interact with you through emails and portals. My primary care provider now has a patient portal that is um, super easy to learn, and uh, it's sort of fun if you're interested in that, and a lot of clinics have developed that. Uh, other ideas are group visits and... Um, and peer support visits and uh, et cetera that have been uh, implemented for to increase access. And the other component is helping uh, patients navigate their insurance. I will say that it's really difficult to have what's called this open access system if you don't have good team-based care because there's, there's only, there are only so many providers that can do this. So, um, so the team-based care is really uh, positions you to be able to effectively do enhanced access. The other um, important component is care co coordination. And what care coordination means within the patient-centered medical home is, is it's, um, is, it's the management of referral transitions. So it's referrals tracking. Not, not what we have so, not that what we do so well, which is case management, which is more clinical in nature. This is really about referral tracking. And an electronic health record can do this, a lot of this for you, but a number of clinics have their front desk staff, medical assistants, and, and new roles such as referral coordinators actually outreaching to do this referral tracking. Um, this has been challenging for Ryan White clinics, and actually in June we are hosting a webinar on this, and I'll be sure to, to share the, the details with you about this. This isn't something that, that Ryan White has necessarily been involved with. So the building blocks help to guide PCMH transformation, and recognition certification is also necessary. It's the way you, you prove it. 
And, um, and I mentioned to you that there are a number of ways for you to become recognized and certified. They are all here um, on this slide. I will say that the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality in, in 2013 summarized some lessons learned from transformation efforts throughout the U.S. And they found that PCMH recognition was often a key driver of moving forward with the PCMH effort. However, a number of the investigators uh, concluded that the practices that received recognition may not be true medical, patient-centered medical homes. And, and so AHRQ says, be careful of just checking the box. And, and the Medical Homes Resource Center has tried really hard to balance this whole notion of recognition, certification, gathering policies, some of that really administrative and sort of mundane um, activity with true practice transformation. So that's why I'm sharing with you the building blocks as well as now I'll share with you some of the, the recognition and accreditation pieces. So um, NCQA uh, 2011 standards, when you think you've gotten got it down, things are going to change. So the 2011 standards are going to be sundown um, uh, in uh, 2014, and actually they've already issued 2014 standards. So if you've already purchased, have you purchased? Good. That's actually to your benefit. Um, if you had per purchased, you could still seek 2011 recognition, but you'd have to do it pretty quickly by March 2014, and if you're a multi-site by December 2014 or I should say March 2015, um, but if you're a multi-site, December 2014. Now, the, the 2014 standards just came out in March, and it takes at least a year to, to move forward with recognition certification. Some clinics have done it in six months. Those aren't many. Um, so the 2014 standards... Uh, you can actually apply in March 2015. And I'll share a little bit with you about what these standards are. They, they've highlighted some things um, that are different from the 2011 standards. The team-based care is a really big piece of the 2014 standards. Care management and focus on high-need populations, which is actually a good fit for us, is really highlighted in the 2014 standards. Uh, integration of behavioral health is, is really highlighted in these 2014 standards. Um, alignment with the triple aim is actually uh, done um, much more deliberately in 2014. And they really are expecting practices to sustain transformation, not just check the box, get all your policies and procedures in order, but sustain it. So they're really, they really are going more deeply into true practice uh, ref transformation and, and becoming really patient-centered. Acceptable forms of documentation are all these sorts of things, and this is all, all shared with you on the NCQA website if you're moving forward with this. Let me just share with you something that 
um, you may have already the QI plan, the, the QM plan that, uh, that Ryan White requires of us. This would qualify in your packet if you were um, moving forward. Some of the other things, um, this came out of the AIDS Education and Training Center. It's, a, it's an evidence-based tool around hyperlipidemia. This would also qualify. So there are six standards for 2014, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. Uh, Patient-centered access, and this is access to team-based care for both routine and urgent needs. Uh, team-based care gets its own standard, and it's about continuity of care. So those pieces of empanelment and, and all those things become very important. Population health, comprehensive health assessment that's evidence-based and focused on the health of entire, the entire patient population within your practice. Care management, and that's uh, case management as well as coordination of care. Care coordination is tracking, uh, it's referral tracking. So making sure that you know what tests have been done, what the results of those tests are, whether a patient was admitted elsewhere for specialty care or whatever, it's really tracking that. And performance measurement and QI. So um, that those are the highlights there, and there's lots of detail under each one of those, and no time for that today. Um, this is a um, PCMH implementation uh, continuum that's interesting. It was developed by uh, Dr. Kathleen Clannon from Alameda County Medical Center, and it was part of a um, HIV access PCMH demonstration project that was that conducted in California over the last three years, and it pretty much shows this continuum of PCMH, and it underscores that. Um, it's really a transformation process, and, um, and, and that it takes a lot of time to get to this fully integrated um, PCMH. So take a look at that. So the evidence so far on the model of care, it's early. Um, and especially early from an academic perspective. Um, but there are a number of positive outcomes related to quality and costs, and these are typically the measures that are shown um, and are being used. And there really is a growing body of evidence that's showing that PCMH is successful when looking at these measures. You can see that a number of um, studies and demonstration projects have come out. Uh, North Carolina's experience are showing uh, healthcare savings, access to care is improved, quality and patient satisfaction, lower costs, healthcare savings. More here. Now, this is is a really interesting study, and if you're interested, you should probably read it. It's quite detailed. So there's a section on the work that's been done in New Hampshire and in Vermont, and it, it's, it's the Patient-Centered Primary Care Collaborative. Um, it's the evidence to date um, just came out in January 2014. 
And so across a number of these measures, there's, they're showing decreased costs, de decreased ED visits, decreased hospitalizations, readmissions have been decreased, improved population health, improved access, improved prevention, and improved patient satisfaction. So available resources. So unfortunately, the HIV Medical Homes Resource Center is in its final months of funding, actually final month of funding. Um, and what we've done is provided, and we're working with Dr. Margaret, Mary Margaret Andrews actually in one of our efforts, which is what we're calling a virtual learning collaborative. So we are um, winding down that activity. We have proposed some things to HRSA for the continuation of the Medical Homes Resource Center. We haven't heard whether they're going to, to do that yet. Oops, didn't throw. Um, but we're hopeful. Um, there are lots of resources on the Target Center website, which is where we were required to put the resources, and um, a number of archived webinars. and. I also am very open to talking with anybody that's interested in wanting to learn more about this. So um, we will continue to include this work, um, hopefully some funded activities, but also because we think this is so important for Ryan White. The Target Center website, this is the Ryan White Target Center website. Uh, I believe that most of you know about it. Um, and there is a whole section on um, medical homes, resource center work, and resources. And that's all, all of the, the peer-reviewed um, journals, et cetera, that are relevant to include resources that we've, we've developed. And we suggest if, and I know that Mary Margaret's group has done this already, um, one of the things to get started is to do a patient uh, centered medical home assessment, and it's really quite helpful in uh, targeting where you're doing well and where you can improve. Um, and so this is one of the activities that we've suggested to the clinics that we've worked with to do right from the beginning. Additionally, there are a number of websites. You need to think carefully about recognition and certification and which ones of these are the best fit for you. These websites give you that information and um, actually quite a bit of information. They have also free tutorials and trainings, et cetera, so you can learn more. Additional references, all I believe all available to you. And that is it. So um, a lot to cover in a short period of time. We actually did this in two days um, within a regional strategic planning workshop. So um, I'm happy to, to take any questions that you might have or follow up with you if you're interested. I thank you. All that stuff, yeah. <laughs> Are there thoughts on the range of size of a, so, so we're an HIV clinic and we're geared out of an infectious disease department. Um, we don't have, the, the physicians that are practicing are infectious disease type physicians, um, not 
family practice with that right. internal medicine. Right. All right, so question is twofold. One is, are there minimum maximum sizes for medical homes? And are there ever medical homes that take different specialties? And I, I, I agree why why and white. And when you look at that list, and I don't know why people are saying they're not at panel because every patient knows who their doctor is, who their nurse is, who their counselor is. So I'm not sure if we'll, we were a small enough program that we only have two medical assistants that put people in right. So I think, um, so are there times when two different practices like a, I don't know what other, a rheumatology clinic and an infectious disease clinic would become a, a medical home and, and, join, and, and join forces? Family practice type person to help with some of the more continuity, you know, non-specialty based care. Well, first of all, NCQA does recognize specialty, specialty clinics now, so a number of, of the Ryan White clinics that truly consider themselves specialty clinics are, are looking into that recognition and certification. But they then have to be, say, we're fully confident in, in the routine internal medicine. Well, it's primary care. The model is about providing primary care to your patients, so it there are a few I don't know the number, but we've asked this of our Ryan White clinics that we've worked with, whether they consider themselves able to provide primary care. And there are a few that say, no, we are a specialty clinic. We, we don't provide primary care. We refer that out. But the large majority of Ryan White clinics feel that they are providing their patients primary care, and they are doing that um, effectively. So, um, so that's one part of your question. Now, combining two specialty programs gets tricky because for the rheumatology patients, they have their needs. Are you saying that the infectious disease? Well, I, I guess I'm trying to see how, how you make it. If you want somebody who's more generally um, the expertise of more of a generalist, yeah. I, I guess I wasn't thinking of it as an HIV. So bringing in a primary care Right, but we have a small program, so yep. that's probably Well, what I can, this might be an easier way of presenting it. What we're doing, actually, is we consider ourselves an HIV specialty practice, right? We provide primary care, but probably not as much primary care as really what's in, imagined under a patient-centered medical home. We've actually decided to join forces with family medicine. And... And so that's how we're, we're filling those gaps. We also think that for a family-centered model of care, it offers a really nice right. um, referral mechanism um, for, for co-located primary care, which is really important for our population. It's about primary care. So it's, it's, you, can, you can figure out lots of different ways to do it, but it, it's about that that's figuring that piece out is the critical piece in terms of size of clinics it is a little easier when you have a larger clinic because then you have the services that go with that that size but some small practices actually some of the AIDS service organizations are really doing some and they have small practices some really interesting medical homes um, work so it's not it, I don't think size is the big limiting factor. It's really thinking about how to do, to provide that primary care, which is critical. So to, to just push a little bit on what uh, on that topic, the challenge that we have, we're not 
Teeny program. Is there a program that you can address people with HIV? That's, that's not Teeny, yeah. no. Uh, but a, a challenge in ensuring primary care for the patients we care for is the geographic diversity um, that they come from. So yep. we provide care for people from all over the state of New Hampshire and a lot of Vermont. So for a lot of those folks, it makes sense for true primary care to reside in their exactly. yep. rather than two hours away. So that's where care coordination is the key. You don't need to provide the primary care on site within your clinical practice, but you need to, to do that care coordination case management piece with primary care. So you need to assure that primary care is happening for your patients and demonstrate that to become recognized and certified. So you don't need to do it within your, your site. And you're right, it, it would make more sense for for patients to get their care in their own communities in many cases so it's it's yeah that's possible but you have to do this is the challenge is really being very deliberate in ways that maybe you haven't been in the past and so the ensuring on it is first getting a primary care provider identified exactly And having real conversations, you know, with that that primary care provider, and you know, making sure that the patient's primary care primary health care needs are really being met in robust ways, not just referring and not getting feedback back, and it's it's creating true improved patient centered care. That's the point. Another thing that always seemed intimidating when I saw the list was the 24-7 access. But I think the way you've described it today, that seems a lot less, it, it, I mean, certainly our patients have a portal, they can meet the doctor at night, and that's, that's what you're talking about. Yes. And then good hours. Good hours, sure. Um, really assessing your population to understand. We have teenagers, so obviously we have some after-school hours. Um, you know, really assessing your patient population to understand what's going to be most helpful to them, and then documenting that. That would that would all fly with recognition certification. But having those other things like electronic, you know, portals, patient portals may not be good for all patients, but actually the evidence on that is pe that patients are more engaged in their health care. And that's, that just came out, JAMA did the study. Um, if, you, if they're engaged with the patient portal, they're really engaged in their health care. So um, that's, a, that's a way to, to bridge some of those access gaps. There are other ways. Um, some of the Ryan White clinics have developed peer support groups and, and other things, peer interactions and, and group visits, et cetera. So there's other ways to create access. And there's some really cool work being done actually on that, um, particularly on the West Coast. I had the opportunity to visit some of these high-performing um, primary care practices, and I was really struck with how they felt different the moment you walked in the door. Really um, cool. And those were ones that were not necessarily HIV. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'd like to say I have more questions, but I have patience. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> Do we have any other questions? All right. Well, great. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure.